I should like to call your attention this evening to the message of that eighth psalm, which we read together at the beginning, psalm number eight, with special emphasis, perhaps, upon verses three and four. When I consider thy heavens the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of men that thou visitest him? Now there is a well-known proverb which uh, reminds us that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And it is something which is undoubtedly true. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Or to put this in a different way, we can say that uh, when a man gives us a report concerning something that he's seen, something that he has been looking at, one of the things and one of the most important things that he rarely does as he gives us his report is to tell us a great deal about himself. Indeed, I think we may well say that when we do give reports about what we have looked at, the chief thing we generally do is to give a report about ourselves. Look at it like this, if you like. There are some people who do not hesitate to tell us and to assert that they see nothing whatsoever in the music of a man like Beethoven, but that they think that jazz music and other forms of music is simply wonderful and marvelous. Now, the point I'm making is this, that as the people speak in that way and manner, the main thing they are rarely doing is not to tell us anything about music, but to tell us a great deal about themselves, and especially in their understanding and appreciation of music. Now, I'm tempted to say something like that just at this present time, and I'm reminded very forcibly of that proverb, which leads to that uh, generalization that I've just been putting to you. Because at the present time, as I think you'll all agree, we are all looking up into the heavens. And we are looking at the stars and the moon and the sun. We're all of us, for various reasons, looking up, I say, into the heavens. And we are seeing certain things. But of course the vital question is this. What are we seeing? What do we see when we look up and contemplate the heavens and the sun and the moon and the stars and all the constellations? Now that, I say, is the great and the vital question. What is the result of our looking in this way? What does it lead to? Now, here in the case of this man, this psalmist, he leaves us in no doubt at all as to what he saw and the result of his seeing. 
When I consider thy heavens the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? That is what this man sees. He sees God. So he starts by saying, O Jehovah, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who hast set thy glory in the heavens, and he ends in the same way. O Jehovah, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. This man looks at the heavens and the stars and the moon, and he sees God and the glory of God. And the end is that he bows down in humility, in worship, and in adoration, and ascribes the glory and the praise to God and to God alone. Now, that is, I think you'll find, the typical reaction of all godly men and all good men everywhere in the Bible. And that is the right and the true reaction. But here comes the question. Is it our reaction? Is it the characteristic and the common reaction of the vast majority of people today? Here they all are looking up at the sun and the moon and the stars, looking into the heavens, talking about that outer space, concentrating upon it, reading about it in their books and journals. But what do they see? What does it lead to? Is it the same reaction as that of the psalmist? Well, isn't it painfully obvious that it isn't? That it is indeed almost the exact opposite? And here, I say, is the great question, the great problem confronting us all this evening. Why is this? That it is possible for two men to look up at the same things and to see things which are so different and to come to such differing conclusions, and to react in such an entirely different and diverse manner. Well, now, that is the great theme of the Bible from beginning to end. The Bible says there's no difficulty about this problem at all. It says that what makes the difference is sin. That sin is something that has so afflicted men that it has blinded him, prevented his seeing. And that sin is something which is so deep in our nature and so devastating in its effects that it affects the whole man and his entire outlook. So that it doesn't matter what he's looking at, you will be able to tell from his speech exactly where he stands. As I say, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. A man looks at a thing, he sees no beauty in it at all. The other man looks at it and he says, well, this is the most wonderful and the most glorious thing I've ever seen in my life. And they're both looking at the same thing. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Yes, says the Bible, that's perfectly true. And the trouble with men is that his eye has been put out of order. His eye has been perverted. There's a kind of opacity in the very lens of his eye. He has lost his real power of vision and of understanding so that when he looks, he doesn't really see and he comes to the wrong conclusions and he makes the wrong statement. Now, that's one side of it. Sin is something that affects the total man. Sin, in other words, is not confined to actions only. 
We mustn't just think of sin only in terms of actions and particular activities. Of course, that is sin, but sin is much bigger than that. The whole person, body, mind, and spirit, has been affected by sin, and thus it comes out in a man's expressions about everything that he sees and everything that he does. But on the other hand, the Bible says that salvation and redemption in exactly the same way, affect the whole man. The Apostle Paul, in a characteristic statement, puts it like this. He says, if any man be in Christ Jesus, he is a new creature, a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. He's looking at the same things as before, but he doesn't see them as before. You see, salvation again is something that affects the whole man. His mind, his heart, his will, his apprehension, his viewing of everything. He's a new creature. All things have become new. Formerly he may have delighted in a public house. He now hates it, the same public house. He may have del delighted in certain companions. He now sees they're bad for him and harmful for him. But they're the same companions. He's changed. They remain the same. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Very well, then, you see, here is a great principle. This terrible thing called sin blinds men. And what makes it so tragic is this, that it blinds him especially with the two most important things of all. And the two most important things of all are God and ourselves. Now, that is precisely what sin has done. Man, as the result of sin, is blinded as to God, and he is blinded as regard to himself. Now, these things always go together. And it is, of course, I say, the final tragedy of sin that man doesn't realize, that man thinks that in forgetting God and finishing with God and turning his back upon God, he's elevating and emancipating himself, but... Actually, as the Bible teaches everywhere, he's doing the exact opposite. And man's true greatness is only to be found when he is in the right relationship to God. Now then, this is the theme of this eighth song. That's exactly what this man is talking about. He tells us that because of his relationship to God, he's got a right view of God, he's got a right view of himself. And I want to compare and to contrast that with the view that is taken by the man who is not in Christ, who is not a Christian, who does not believe in God and who doesn't surrender his life to God. Let me show it to you in this way. Man in sin, I say, does not see and does not realize the glory of God. That's the first thing. He's wrong about God. He's wrong about himself. I'm taking the first only this evening. Man in sin has been blinded to such an extent that he doesn't see the glory of God. Now, let me put it in this form. Here is man, modern man, who long since has given up believing in God and who ridicules it and who pours perhaps his blasphemous scorn upon it. Here he is, he is looking up at the heaven. And he says, when I consider the heavens, 
the moon and the stars and so on. Here he is looking up at the heavens. But the question is, I say, what does he see? And the answer is that he sees the heavens alone. He sees something very great and something very wonderful. He sees something very marvelous. And he has a most extraordinary, detailed, exact and scientific knowledge of it all. He can tell us things about the sun. He can tell us about the moon, the character of the surface of the moon. He can tell us a lot about the number of these stars. He can tell us something about their very being and existence, as it were. He can tell us about that outer space. He talks about billions of years and how light travels. He's discovered the most astounding things in the last two or three centuries about the sun and the moon and the stars and all the marvel and the wonderful of the heavens and of the sky. But what does all that lead to? What is his final reflection? What is his ultimate conclusion? What does he deduce from all this? Now I say the real tragedy is that men, apart from God, the man who isn't related to God, the man who isn't a Christian, the man who doesn't believe the Bible, he just stops at that. He stops at the sun and the moon and the stars and all the marvels of the Milky Way and all these other things. He marvels at the facts. He marvels also at himself and at his own wonderful knowledge of the facts, and at his own extraordinary ability to discover and to find out these facts. But I ask in all seriousness, does he go beyond that? Does he get at all beyond the phenomena in and of themselves, and his own greatness and his own ability to see them, and to be able to catalog them and to describe them, and to tell us various things about them? I think that I'm being perfectly fair when I suggest that that is precisely the position of the man who does not believe in God and in the Lord Jesus Christ. He sees nothing but sun, moon, and stars. He doesn't see God. He sees nothing beyond them, these phenomena in and of themselves. He draws no final deductions except, I say, that they are marvelous and that he is marvelous in his discovery of them. Now, the question that therefore confronts us is this. Why is this? Why is it possible for men today to look up into the heavens and to look at the moon and the stars and to stop just at that and to be so different from the men who wrote this psalm? who finds, I say, himself marveling at God and his glory and worshipping him and praising him and adoring him. What is it, I say, that accounts for the difference? Why is men like this? Well, there are certain things that surely are perfectly clear about him, and here are some of them. Men stops only at that which is visible. And he fails to see the glory and the wonder of that which, in a sense, is invisible. 
I say he looks up and he sees nothing but sun, moon and stars. No more. He's materialist in his outlook. He stops with phenomena and doesn't go beyond them. Let me put this to you in some well-known lines of poetry. Here it is, isn't it? Here is a poet describing this kind of men. And this is how he puts it. He says, a primrose by a river's brim. A yellow primrose was to him. And it was nothing more. You see, he's got the mind, the mentality of a, a botanist, a mere botanist. A yellow primrose. Stamen, petals, and all the rest of it. A yellow primrose was to him. And it was nothing more. He just sees a primrose. And he says, what are you getting excited about? What are you writing your poetry about? That's a primrose. And a primrose is a primrose. Now, there are people like that, aren't there? A primrose by a river's brim, a yellow primrose was to him, and it was nothing more. But you see, there's another poet who says this about himself. He says to me, the meanest flower that blows can give thoughts that do often lie too deep for tears. He looks at a little violet in a hedgerow, and he sees the cosmos, he sees God. He's moved by thoughts that are too deep for expression, too deep for tears. He's only looking at the violet and the other friend with him, the practical man of the world, the materialist, he says, what are you getting excited about? That's only a violet, it's only a primrose. No, no, says this man. You are only seeing the visible. I'm seeing the invisible in the visible. I'm seeing what's behind it. Exactly in the same way as this man says, I look at the sun and the moon and the stars and I see God. But this man, I say, who is outside the life of God and outside the life of Christ, he sees nothing but phenomena. He sees nothing but what is surely visible and physical and material. He misses the further, the added, the bigger glory. That's one thing that's true of him. But here is another thing that is true of him. He obviously is a man who doesn't follow his own statements and his own reasoning to their own logical conclusion. What do you mean, says someone? Well, I mean this. Take a typical modern man, a godless scientist, if you like, or any man who is godless, here he is, he gives you his marvelous descriptions. He tells you about these spheres, these constellations, these worlds, as it were, far, far away above this earth, and how they turn on their axes and how they move in their orbits, and yet there isn't a clash. He describes it all in its intricacy and in its wonder and marvel and arrangement, and then he stops. Now I say he ought to ask certain questions. If he were truly reasonable and rational, he would go on and he'd put certain questions such as these. He'd say, where has all this come from? How has all this come to pass? How does all this happen and take place? Does he stop at the mere description? Doesn't he say, this is marvelous, this is entrancing, this is wonderful? Has all this come as the result of accident and chance? What is this? He doesn't ask such questions. He stops at the phenomena, at the things that he sees and can measure and describe. And there he ends. He doesn't raise these other questions. He seems to lack a kind of imagination. 
He doesn't pursue what he's already discovered and ask and draw certain vital deductions out of it. He is guilty of that. And the result is, of course, that he is content with a totally inadequate explanation of the very things that he is describing, the very things that he is seeing. Here he is, I say, looking at the heavens and the moon and the stars and the sun and all the wonder and amazement of it all. And then you ask him perhaps the question, well, how does all this come into being? And he says the answer is force, power, energy, evolution, chance, fortuitous. He says there is no creator, there is no mind at the back of it all. They've just come. They've come into being. You say, but how have they come into being and what keeps them in being and what orders them? And that's his answer. Force, energy, power, evolution, chance, accident. But surely I say this is totally inadequate. This is quite impossible as an explanation of all the wonders that he so accurately describes. Doesn't the very greatness and the wonder and the marvel of it all drive us to an inevitable conclusion? Well, you know, there have been certain great scientists even in this century, like the late Sir James Jeans, who have said, yes, I have been driven to that conclusion. My very scientific study makes me say there must be a mind at the back of it all. There must be a God somewhere. I can't understand it apart from an eternal mind. But you see, there are so many who are looking at these things and they go no further and they rest content with this completely and totally inadequate and unsatisfactory explanation of it all. Now, why is this? How is it possible that any man should rest in that position? What is it that causes any man to stop at that point? Well, here is the Bible with its answer. The Bible doesn't hesitate to tell us that it's all the result of two things in men, and the first is his pride. The Apostle Paul, in the first chapter of the Epistle to the Romans, puts it in these words, in verse 25, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Man is proud of his intellect, proud of his understanding, proud of his knowledge. And surely this has never been clearer than it is today. Man, I say, looks at all that, he describes the phenomena, he marvels at that and he marvels at himself and at his knowledge. He is marveling at himself today with his telescopes and his ability to shoot up these satellites. Man, proud of his achievement, proud of his understanding. Pride is the central cause of this difficulty, says the Bible. Yes, but unfortunately there's something added to the pride. And something which perhaps is even the source of the pride. Did you notice how the psalmist put it? He says it is enmity against God. Listen to this second verse. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy 
and the avenger. What does that mean? Well, what the psalmist is saying is this. That man is at enmity against God. And that God is silencing the enmity of man and answering it by these remarkable phenomena and the response of babes and sucklings to it. But man is at enmity against God. And that is why he doesn't see the glory of God in these things. It's because he's got a totally false view of God. And because he has this feeling within him. That he is not going to recognize anybody or anything above himself. And that is why he doesn't like God and doesn't believe in God. He believes in man. He says this idea of God means that we are subservient. And he says there is no one greater than men. That's why the clever people in the Brains Trust a few Sundays ago said that they could do away with God. Somebody asks, well, what you put instead of God? They said, man. That is the cause of the enmity against God. That they have this feeling that if there's a God, well then there's somebody greater than us. And there mustn't be anybody greater than us. So we say there isn't a God. And therefore, having decided that there isn't a God, we are so prejudiced that we can't see him when we're looking at him. That is how sin works. This violent prejudice against God, this hatred of God, this awful attitude in men towards God, which is the result of his pride, I say, and his belief in himself, it blinds him to the facts. We all know something about the power of prejudice, don't we? The prejudiced person is a person who prejudges an issue. He doesn't give the person who's on trial a chance at all. He's already decided that he's wrong. He hates that person. And therefore, because he hates that person, that person cannot possibly do anything right. And therefore, whatever that person may do, it must be wrong. That's prejudice. You can look at the facts, but you can see what you want to see. And a man is governed by his prejudice. The godless, the sinful man, the non-Christian, has such a hatred against God and such a violent prejudice against God that he cannot see anything but sun, moon, and stars. He doesn't see God at all. That, says the Bible, is the explanation. And it leads to this pathetic and tragic result. That man becomes a fool, professing themselves to be wise, says the Apostle Paul. They became fools. How have they become fools? Well, here is his answer. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. What does he mean? Well, this is what he really is actually saying. That God is ridiculing these clever men who hate him. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings, man instinctively believes that behind all phenomena is God. There is this universal belief in the being of a supreme God, the creator. It's in children. It's in primitive peoples. It's in simple people, babes and sucklings. They praise God. They believe. 
It is only man in his sophistication that does not believe. It's because of this intellectual pride and therefore it's this prejudice that stands between him and the glory of God. But thus I say, man makes a fool of himself and makes himself look ridiculous. Now there it is stated in the Old Testament in Psalm 8. That it says is the real trouble with men in sin. But shall I show you for a brief moment the same thing in the New Testament. What a terrible thing sin is. Oh, how it blinds men. Did you notice it there in the 21st chapter of the Gospel according to St. Matthew? Here is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, standing before men, working his mighty miracles and his extraordinary deeds. And the little children begin to cry out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David, Hosanna in the highest. The common people did the same thing. As he rides into Jerusalem on the back of that ass, we are told that the people ran before him, threw their clothes on the ground, put sticks on the ground, a royal procession. And they cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. But you remember what happened. When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were sore displeased, and said unto him, Yarest thou what these say? Why don't you stop them, they said? Don't you realize they're ascribing the qualities of God to you, and are praising your name as if you were God? Why don't you stop them? And he saith unto them, Yea, I do hear you, and I hear them. Have you never read out of the mouth of babes and sucklings? Hast thou perfected praise? Don't you see it's exactly the same thing? Men of old looked at the stars and the sun. They see nothing but stars and sun. They don't see God. The Pharisees and scribes and chief priests and elders, they look at the Son of God, and what do they see? A man only. They don't see the God. They see a man, a carpenter, an artisan, and nothing more. And you see, it's exactly the same as we have in that eighth psalm. The children cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. The common people heard him gladly. Christ said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes. Yes, says Paul to the Corinthians, not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, 
But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise and base things of the world to confound the things that are mighty and weak and so on, yea, and things that are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Don't be surprised, he says again to those Corinthians. The princes of this world didn't know him. For had they known him, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The Pharisees, the scribes, the doctors of the law, the chief priests, the princes, they looked at him. They saw his marvelous deeds, we are told. They saw his miracles. They're looking at the facts. What do they see? Nothing but facts. A man, they say, blinded by their prejudices. Why didn't they go on and say, who is this? Why didn't they go on and say, how do we explain this man? Is he only a man? Is it possible? But they didn't. They so hated him because he wasn't a Pharisee. They were determined that he was only a man. They were blinded to the God. They hold down the truth, says Paul, in unrighteousness. What a terrible thing sin is. It blinds us to the God, to the glory, to the eternal and the everlasting, and makes us see facts and phenomena and nothing else. Don't you see, my friend, that this terrible thing called sin robs you of the special glory? It stands between you and the real truth. It blinded the unbelievers in the Old Testament. It blinded them as they looked into the face of God in Jesus Christ. Very well then, let me close by putting it to you like this. What then should we see? What conclusion should we draw as we look at the heavens and as we consider the moon and the stars, and all the wonders of it all? The answer is here, simple and plain. Let me just summarize it for you in just two or three principles. This psalmist looked, when I consider the heavens the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars, what did he see? He saw God. O Jehovah, our Lord, he says, Thou almighty creator, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. He looked at the earth and he saw God. These are the marks of God's fingers, the flowers, the grass, the animals, all these are but the works of God. He looked at the heavens. He says, Thou hast set thy glory above the heavens. You're beyond it all. You're at the back of it all. You are the explanation of it all. All this is but the work of God's fingers. He sees the phenomena, but he says, Where have they come from? How do I explain their existence? And he says, There's only one answer. It's God. The eternal, the maker, and the creator of all. But you see, he didn't stop even there. 
Looking at the moon and the stars, he thinks of God. And he says, how almighty is God. How wonderful, how eternal, how absolute he must be in all his power. And he wants to worship him. But he says there's something still more marvelous. It's this. That such a being should be mindful of men. What is men that thou who art so great art mindful of him? What does he mean? He means this. He is not only thinking of God as the creator. He is thinking of the providence of God. He is thinking of God as one who not only controls the stars and the moon and the sun, but of God, the same God who is interested in us one by one, center and soul of every sphere, yet to each loving heart, how near this great and august and eternal being that brought the sun into being out of nothing, that created the moon to reflect the light of the sun, that suspended the stars and the constellations and set them in their courses. This almighty creator is interested in me. He knows me. He gives me health and strength and food and clothing. He knows my circumstances. He knows us one by one. He's individually interested in us. Look at his providence. He began to think about that. But he didn't stop even there. God the creator, God the God of providence. Ah, but above and beyond it all, the God of redemption. What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? My dear friend, have you seen it? Not only is God interested in us from heaven and provides for us and our needs, he's done something infinitely bigger, something much more staggering and amazing. He's visited us. So that Zacharias, the son of John the Baptist, could sing and say, God hath visited and redeemed his people. How did he know that? Well, he'd been given the message that his own son John was to be forerunner to another. This great Messiah that was to come, God hath visited and redeemed his people. This same eternal God has come down on earth to dwell in his son. He's visited us in his mercy and in his love and in his compassion. In spite of our pride and our arrogance and our sin, in spite of our blindness and our self-exaltation, in spite of the fact that we have rebelled against him and hated him, he has sent his only son into the world. And not only that, he sent him to the cross to die for our sin. He laid on him the iniquity of us all and punished our sins in him. He hath visited us. This weak, sinful, rebellious son of man, that's what the man began to see. That in spite of our enmity and hatred, our vileness and our utter 
poverty and hopelessness. God hath visited us. Here you see the things that the men of faith see. He looks at the same moon. He looks at the same stars. He looks at the same heavens. But this is what he sees. Even as the believers in the New Testament, when they looked at this same person, this Jesus of Nazareth, Peter, acting as a spokesman, says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's what he saw. Not only the man, the God-man, the Savior of the world. Thou hast the words of eternal life. To whom can we go? But unto thee. Well, my friends, there it is. And I end by asking my question. You are looking at the moon and the stars and the heavens. You are reading all about the marvels of outer space. And the brilliance and the ability of man in sending up his satellites, in landing perhaps upon the moon, and all the things that he's talking about and proposing to do. I say the vital question is this. What's your reaction? What's your report? What does it lead you to say? Are you just saying these Russians are marvelous? They've stolen the march on the Americans. Isn't it brilliant? Isn't man wonderful? Is it that? And have you stopped there? If you have, it means that you're blinded by sin. That you're a slave of iniquity. That you can't see. That the God of this world hath blinded your eyes, lest you see. It means that you belong to the realm of the lost, outside God and his glory, and the enjoyment of him through all eternity. What do you see? Do you see in all this the glory and the wonder of God? The God who made them all. Oh, yes, but still more wonderful. The God who is self-existent, Jehovah, I am, eternally independent, not needing us at all, who can make these things and play with them as if they were nothing. Oh, have you seen this? That this great and wonderful and marvelous and eternal God is concerned about you and knows you has sent his son to die for you and for your sin. Would redeem you and save you, adopt you into his family and make you his son and take you to himself eventually in heaven and enable you to look down upon sun and moon and stars, and every and everything else. And spend your eternity looking into his face and beholding his eternal glory. That, I say, is the question. 
Do you see him in it all? Do you with David get down on your knees and say, O Jehovah, our Lord, do you thank him? Do you praise him? Do you feel you're a miserable worm? What is man? Weak, sinful, rebellious? Man in his enmity, what is man that thou visitest him? Does it lead you to that? Have you seen the glory in the face of Jesus Christ? Is he but a teacher to you, but a man? Or have you seen him as the God-man dying to redeem you? Oh, the tragedy of being blinded to the glory of the invisible and the divine and seeing nothing but the visible and the seen. If you feel this evening that you've never seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, run to God, my dear friend. Ask him to have mercy. Ask him to open your eyes by his Holy Spirit. Ask him to give you the vision. Say, I want to see, I believe. Ask him. And he will not refuse you. However much you may have sinned against him, however much you may have blasphemed his name, however blind you may have been to his glory, in your enmity and in your pride, go to him as a little child. Say, I want to be one of the babes and suckling. And he will give you that new birth. And you will begin to see things that are invisible. Things that the world cannot see and doesn't know. But the things that are real, the things that are eternal. Amen.